Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me online at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA. All right, man. Now, here's the most amazing thing about this show. We have been growing so much this year, and we've been working so hard on trying to get like every piece of mutant media into this show that... <laughs> This week, we're actually going to be opening up with a title that features an inordinate number of mutants for how magical it is. I'm talking about Strange Academy. Now, have you had a chance to dive into Scotty Young's Strange Academy yet? Oh my god, yes, and it is fantastic in this issue. Oh my god, I know you want to mention it, but the appearance, oh, yes. Uh, that first arc was so interesting and powerful and really got everybody on the show talking and thinking. And as we've continued, sure enough, we've had mutant appearances from the likes of Ileana, the sort of mutant appearance of Wanda. But this <laughs> this two issues, seven and eight, we get an appearance from none other than Ecstatic's very own dead girl. And in this next segment, Rod, Raven, Dante, and Robbie talk about how incredible this school is. And I know they've said it before, how much they would love to go to this magic school. Nathan, what would be your magical school? Would you want to go to Strange Academy? If I only had to pick a non-mutant school, absolutely. But, like, I really would want to go to, like, you know, New Mutants Academy. Yeah, no, for real. I would find myself on Krakoa pretty quickly. But... If I couldn't make it to Krakoa, there'd be no finer place than to find myself in the pages of Scotty Young and Humberto Ramos's Strange Academy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the next segment of X's for Podcast. I'm Rod. You can find me at Rod Kamada on Twitter and Instagram. And today we have with us Dante. Hey, everyone. This is Dante. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. And we also have with us Raven. Hello, everybody. This is Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. Come find me on Twitter, Instagram, wherever. I'd love to hear from you. And today we also have Robbie with us. How you doing, Robbie? I'm good. Hey, everyone. I'm Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. Awesome. And today we are talking about Strange Academy, issue number seven and eight. Yay! That is by Scotty Young is the writer, Humberto Ramos is the artist, Edgar Delgado is the color artist, and VC's Clayton Cowles is the letter. Now, last time we were on Strange Academy, Doyle had actually died, mm-hmm. and they were going yeah. into Hollow, and we were shocked by that, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And it's been quite a bit of time since we got the next book, but now mm-hmm. we had to put these two books together because they're so continuous off of each other mm-hmm. that it just made more sense to talk about them at the same time. Yeah. So, Dante, what did you think so far of this first one, the num- issue number seven? Issue number seven, I thought was... Uh, was very impactful. Um, I thought it was a really great journey about grief, especially from a younger perspective, somebody who, you know, has power but feels powerless, striving to, you know, find an answer, find a solution. I really, it like, it just resonated really well with me. I felt, I felt a really good connection, strong connection with Emily as she was kind of going through that, that journey of dealing with
dealing with the fact that her friend had died mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's 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 the perfect way to, to describe it it was absolutely wonderful and honestly i'd been hoping for more character development from her simply because she was the first character we were kind of introduced to and then we got development on other characters which i loved um but yeah this was this was so deep and impactful and meaningful that uh, it honestly it it surprised me but in such a great way and we get to see the depths of like empathy and conviction that this young girl has when it comes to her friends and and grief and dealing with guilt and everything that's going on and how she honestly feels kind of failed by the adults that were around her and in many ways she's right uh, one thing I really loved uh, a lot with this, like overall, is seeing like the links that Doctor Strange is is willing to go through to save his students if he can. Well, oh yes, this I, issue. oh yeah. I mean, I love just how all the the teachers right now are like Doctor Voodoo is like, I need to go, so we need to save Doyle too. And Strange is like, mm -hmm. well, I'm not, I'm not talking to Dormammu. Sorry, he can just die. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, Doctor, I mean, Doctor Voodoo is definitely like the the moral compass. Mm -hmm. But so is Zelma too. Like oh, Zelma's yeah. more like the logical moral compass, and Doctor mm -hmm. Voodoo's like I have to save everybody. Mm -hmm. And then Strange is like, No, we're doing what I want. Oh <laughs> my god! Then, like I could have honestly smacked Strange a couple of times. He's yeah. like, Well, if you're gonna go off to the dark dimension, you're going on your own. He's like, Yeah, damn right, I'm going. <laughs> so if it's on my own, oh well, I'm doing this noise. I have to try and save him. I'm like, Oh. Well, that and when he called Zelma just, uh, what was it, a school librarian? Ooh, yeah. ooh, girl, you did not just disparage this woman who has done so effing much for this school and for your students. Yeah. Oh, and even before oh, that, she did mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, yeah. I love that that Scotty Young really gets their dynamic well because mm -hmm. Zelma and and Doctor Strange have obviously had a past. Um, mm -hmm. They had a very dramatic past. They even were kind of lovers a little bit, like love interest, but then that kind of got destroyed by Doctor Strange. Um, Surprise! Surprise! So, <laughs> so I mean, that's why she's in in the magics is because of him mostly. And I like how they have that, like that tick for tack, you know, she's like, I like how you think that's an insult, but I'm still going to school you on this. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. We're just in the moment. And mm. I feel like this is teaching him because he's always been more aggressive in his way of thinking because he thinks he's know everything. He's kind of like the Tony. He's the Tony Stark of magic. He really is. And I feel like him being in this school is really teaching Stephen Strange that, you know, you have to listen to other people. You're not always right. But also it's you're not on a superhero team right now. Mm -hmm. And he does talk about that in the, in the issue number eight. But he's like, you are in a school with teachers and students like you have to be more Tactful. And mm -hmm. I feel like he's le slowly learning that. <laughs> Ever so slowly. <laughs> but the fact that Emily was able to hold all this energy, and I know she was about to die, but she was still able to hold it. I think, mm -hmm. I know the whole premise is, you know, Doyle is the chosen one, but I think that's like a miss, like a misdirection. I think Emily, especially since we were first introduced to her, I think she's the chosen one. Well, I mean, there's still so much to see, but I mean, usually anytime you have a chosen one, especially a destructive force, there tends to be some sort of a uh, foil or a countermeasure that you know the gods the universe whatever puts into play so maybe she is the counterbalance to his darkness which could be amazing oh yeah 
Which, I mean, they're making them in love. So it's very like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I love you, but I have to destroy you. No, no, no. I, mm, I'm going to say, I don't see them as being in love, but I do see them as being really good friends. And maybe that kind of relationship could develop. But yeah, I think... I don't see them as like in luck. Like Doyle and Emily? Yeah. Yeah. I see them as like they're growing to be good friends and they're really good foils for each other, but I don't see them as in love. Because in love, that's a that's a big word. That's true. That's like Jean Grey and Cyclops. That's in love. But true. like they just met, you know, it's maybe a puppy love or an infatuation, but I do see them becoming such good friends and being a really good counterbalance for each other. Doyle is a bit more um, straightforward and, and you know just ready to go and just like has a lot of confidence and a lot of um, drive to do. And Emily, on the other hand, has a lot more empathy and calm and a willingness to learn to grow stronger. It's like knowledge to grow stronger is what she wants. So I think they balance each other really, really well. And I love that. I have to say that I actually, um, I agreed with Rod and my thinking is as well you know raven when you said you know we, you wanted more from emily that's what i wanted too because she was that first point of view character and mm-hmm. i felt like i had been waiting and waiting and waiting and i felt like we're I, we're getting to a point where just like rod said it's a bit of a misdirect um yeah. that's that's how i interpreted it too you know the obvious the one would be Doyle <laughs> or mamu mm-hmm. uh but the hollow made the comment at a trio of people so you could very mm. easily like still make the argument that maybe it could be one of the others um but like we're we we also see in this issue dr strange is all focused on emily and making mm-hmm. sure emily is okay and emily survives and that's his only priority he doesn't even care that doyle died he's focused right? on emily so like that that amount of importance that he places on her really makes me you know question is she the one <laughs> so you know i i think that i and what you're saying about about maybe her being kind of a counterbalance doyle and if he is still the one you know i could see that too um, I could see that both of them have an important part to play in whatever's coming up. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see that because I do love their dynamic. They have they have a great uh, budding friendship, mm-hmm. relationship, whatever whatever degree of, of love it might be. Uh, we, we definitely know that Doyle is crushing on Emily. Whether mm-hmm. or not Emily has romantic feelings back, I feel like is still uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are definitely close. And and I think all of the kids, you know, they're, they're building those relationships and being really close with each other. Um, so I'm excited to see where those dynamics take us mm-hmm. yeah i definitely agree with that i'm very interested in this slight like, in this possible misdirect that we're getting this idea of the chosen one because we don't exactly know and that i love the idea of that being kind of like a bit of a mystery like oh is it doyle is it emily is it someone else who knows but like um with uh like like y'all said with strange putting so much importance on saving her going to that whole cat god and making mm-hmm. a whole nother deal when he's already <laughs> way in debt um mm-hmm. that shows importance because he's not going to make a deal for you know some tiny little thing that he could go to anyone else for like he's no he knows so many different beings in like existence that he could get help from mm-hmm. but to go to like a certain one he's already in debt for that's a lot right there yeah true that is true oh yes and that's a good uh 
uh, segue, Robbie, oh, <laughs> going to the, the cat god, is, uh, I can't, I'm going to say this name and tell me if I said it right. The character, the cat god, Hogoth? Hogoth? Yeah, I, I was pretty sure it was Hogoth or Hogoth. Hogoth? Okay. I was Hogoth. thinking Hogoth. Hogoth. I think I've okay. always, yeah, Hogoth is what I've, I feel like I've always heard and maybe what I've always said in my head. It's because that god is such a hoe, so it's Hogoth. <laughs> okay. So, oh my gosh. That tiger Hogoth. god is such a hoe god. Oh, yeah. Such a hoe god. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would expect an eyebrow piercing at least. <laughs> right? Get with the times, Hogoth. Get with the times. You know oh. she's probably got, like, a tramp stamp somewhere that we can't see on her ethereal body. So, you know, what else? I mean, they've been around forever. So, apparently, I've seen Hogoth before because I've read a, a lot of Doctor Strange. I can't remember. I mean... I, I read the history and Hogoth has appeared a lot, especially mm-hmm. with the uh, the Vashadi. Um, but just to give the listeners a little back, back uh, Hogoth is an extremely ancient and powerful magic entity, and it's the last survivors of an ancient mystic race. And it suggests to be part of one of the old ones. Ooh. So Hogoth is a pretty big deal, and they're part of a group called the Vashadi that basically grants Doctor Strange the permission to be Sorcerer Supreme. So the fact that this big ball gets dropped in this issue. I mean, this is a very important issue because now we know how the school is able to be a school. Mm -hmm. And that you know, something is coming, which is why they brought this school in the first place, which we kind of figured that. Whenever I feel like a superhero group does something, it's for a reason. They don't just do it to do it, usually. So (laughs) they're preparing these students and magical beings for something else that's coming from magic again. So I I really enjoy the art that Berto and Edgar really do with Hogarth, because that is the colors and the line work is just... It was uh, immaculate. It is gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, it's beyond gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I love how imposing Hogoth looks in the whole scene. Um, yeah, just spectacular. Like, I am scared. <laughs> Of this right. giant cat god oh it's amazing yeah well i i was honestly very sure that strange was about to be like eaten <laughs> i was just like oh you mess with the wrong god they are not happy with you it just oh it was so beautifully done the line work the art like just you could feel how giant and old and imposing this being was standing next to strange strange looked minuscule next to him and it was beautiful it was so well done oh yes and what like one of my favorite tropes that marvel i guess comic books do a lot in general but especially marvel do when the protagonist which i guess technically dr strange is like one of the main protagonists i mean is it called strange academy mm-hmm. um is like well you know hogarth you need you need us you know what's coming <laughs> so yeah. you either get it together or you need to like stop being dramatic you know Mm-hmm. And and he just roars at him. I mean, we've seen this with like Jane Foster when she was goddess Thor talking to the Phoenix. We've mm-hmm. seen this with T'Challa talking to the Panther gods. And I mean, like we we see this over and over, like these these technically smaller beings talking to this godlike creatures and being like, "Hey, you need me, mm-hmm. and you need to stop trying to be all boastful and egocentric and just get on with it." Mm-hmm. And I love when that happens because it's just like, first of all.
of all, it, it lets the artist go wild with the roar. So. <laughs> but it's just kind of puts things in perspective. Like even just because they're a god doesn't mean they can do whatever. They still need all the other little people. Mm-hmm. One thing that I loved <laughs> was the line <laughs> where he's like, your arrogance never ceases to amaze me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Doctor Strange's uh, arrogance also never ceases to amaze me, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, yeah, I love that little trait of quips and jabs. Like, <laughs> It was a great placement for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Like, yeah, Ho- Hogoth is all of us. Like, I think we all feel that same way about Strange. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. He, I mean, he's had so many, even in his recent runs the last few years, he's had so many moments where he's had to come against his own ego and be humbled by it. But, you know, he still has that he's arrogance. He's for long. No, it doesn't last long. <laughs> he's like, oh man, I'm not that great. I should be, I need help. And I should also be nicer to people. But I'm also the Sorcerer Supreme, so I know all. <laughs> he's like i and it it kind of like if you have that title it's kind of hard not to act like that i guess (laughs) especially if you're like a white man so (laughs) apparently right (laughs) it's also real supreme it's like oh my god girl that is not what that means It is really funny that it seems like a reoccurring trope for Doctor Strange. I read the Kelly Thompson uh, Captain Marvel run, and mm-hmm. there was a story with Doctor Strange in there, and it was kind of the same thing. Like they, I mean, we're talking about two characters who are kind of arrogant, learning to appreciate each other, and then kind of overcoming their, you know, each other's arrogance and appreciating each other for what they can do. It just seems like it's a constant thing with with Doctor Strange. Like he always is being put in that situation. It's like, oh, he's getting better. Oh, he reverted back. And now we're seeing that again with him. And I guess it's kind of fun to see, but it also can feel a little tired at times too. He didn't remain humble for more than a couple of pages because when they got back and uh, Dr. Voodoo came back in, he's like, well, see, this is what your headmaster looks like because he ran off. It's like, dude, <laughs> dude, you just almost got your ass whipped by a giant pussycat because you are asking for yet more debt. Like, don't act all high and mighty. You almost got eaten. Like, yep. take it out. <laughs> even even before that, I love when um, we have this moment with when Emily and Zelma. Emily calls them out. She's like, y'all should have told us from the beginning how this was because we thought we were invincible. And that's why we're all in this mess. And I'm like, exactly. Because, I mean, in the pages, you did seem like they were invincible. I was. I remember reading this, first reading the first two issues. And I'm like, wow, they can do so much magic already. This is amazing. Like, how are they so talented? And it's like, no, just the cost was eaten up and they were able to do whatever they wanted. And it was, you know, easy for them to do because they didn't have to face the cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. oh, talk about a reveal. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. I think, I think, yeah, that the reveal really is very impactful because I think it's Zelma and Emily having a conversation maybe back in the first issue um, where Emily is learning there is a cost to magic. And then she's asking like, well, what, like, what's the cost of us doing magic at the school? And it's like, oh, you don't need to worry about it. Right. Like, oh, thanks. And then, yeah, we, we get all these uh, amazing adventures and, and stories from the kids. And it's like, oh, it's just like happy-go-lucky. And then once they're removed from the academy setting, 
it's like holy shit like no we're <laughs> like things are getting real we are not powerful enough to handle stuff on our own we still need to learn more but like so unprepared for the reality of life and magic outside of the academy walls yeah yeah and oh, she pointed it out beautifully is like like you didn't need to give us all the information but if you just told us about the cost we wouldn't have gone running off like we were invincible and i wouldn't have convinced my friends to go off trying to save people as if we were invincible we would have found a different way we probably would have notified you know the adults or some shit like we wouldn't have been so uh carefree and uh, you know unabandoned and just doing our thing if we had known that that this was sitting right behind us and it's like she's she's straight up right she is just dead on right if they had simply told them magic has a cost what we are doing here we're giving you a little bit of a power boost for a while so you can get used to your powers but there are going to be consequences don't push it too far like she's dead on right i love it yeah we needed that moment i figured we were gonna get that moment at some point because scotty young definitely hinted at it even from the first issue mm -hmm. but i'm glad we're getting to that point now and honestly i felt so going back to like you said raven with dr voodoo coming in with dr strange i felt so bad i was like no my baby my honey dr voodoo don't be don't be weak don't be sad <laughs> <laughs> please don't be stabbed again <laughs> i know i'm like just just be okay it's gonna be okay you're in the you're out of that dimension now just heal yourself back up <laughs> oh goodness gracious Ooh. but emily is very courageous like either even if it's puppy love they definitely she definitely has a connection with doyle she definitely cares for him because mm -hmm. to push dr strange to the side and and to jump into the um yes. realm is because that's not a realm to be taken Lightly, obviously, mm -mm. It, almost, it almost drained Doctor Voodoo of his life force. It drains anyone that's not of that realm's life force. It's not like basically a demon. Mm -hmm. And we see that with her is like she she thinks she can do it and then she can't. But the fact that she was even able to survive a little bit mm -hmm. that long, I feel like really proves how powerful she really is. Mm -hmm. And I really love seeing all, all of this because in like other issues, I was like a little nervous that she might you know get like quote-unquote like boring main character syndrome where mm -hmm. i kind of like like every other, like not every other character but most of the side characters and mm -hmm. with this issue in particular she defies that she's like nah bitch y'all <laughs> i'm gonna make sure y'all love me after this <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah no you're 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 dead on with that because yeah a lot of times you'll have that that first person narrative you know your main protagonist or your first protagonist and you're like oh yeah cool and then they just they don't do much and they just kind of they become that boring hurts. thing yeah <laughs> but yeah like oh my god the courage of her conviction to jump in there she's like i can't can't just sit here maybe you're not willing to take the chance but i have to at least try this is my friend mm -hmm. and, and she does that knowing that it could destroy her i'm just like girl and in that risk that she takes there's so much like potential that she has as a character with that alone because mm -hmm. who knows what else she's gonna jump to do right oh so good so good and i love the last three pages of this issue yes. where it's just no talking it's just humberto and edgar going to town showing these emotions that emily is facing and it's just like it's basically like in those tv shows where the you know the the loved one sees the dead body for the first time mm -hmm. but this is a magic so obviously i mean i think we kind of all knew that she was probably gonna bring him back it you know she's you know she's special but <laughs> 
the fact, I don't, obviously, Strange, Zelma, and Dr. Voodoo didn't know because they all look shocked. And they, they all look shocked, I feel like, because you shouldn't be able to bring someone back like that. Like, but she contained his power. Mm-hmm. Like, she had a piece, she still had, like, pieces of him attached to her that they could not fully remove. So I'm not too surprised that she could restart his flame, as it were. But also, if you if you remember back to the first issue, she brought a tree to life by accident like Mm -hmm. fully animated it made it into a moving creature Mm -hmm. so like when she did that to doyle i'm like oh oh that's right she has at least some sort of kind of life magic so that was oh so good and she brought her dog back when he got hit by a car Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so she she's definitely like the life bringer Mm -hmm. but i don't know if they i mean i'm assuming they did this on purpose because they cut to her face but what if every time she brings someone back she loses a part of herself because if you see her eyes Mm -hmm. she looks very like blank face Mm. yeah she could be giving up a piece of herself Mm. dang i didn't even think of that oh oh it's a good point i love this yeah when Raven, you what you made me think, then what you were just saying is maybe Emily and Doyle are more connected now. Maybe they could both be the one. <laughs> <laughs> you know just from that just from that now that shared connection his energy in her body her bringing him back to life i mean i know the one you know pretty much spells out that it's a single character but like what if the one is two you know what if it's a it's a coupling a union of sorts not not that they're going to get married not that they're going to be romantic but what if emily did bring Doyle back to life they might their souls might be connected now since you know she did have a piece of him in her mm-hmm. and then she brought him back mm-hmm. and now I she think. has that uh, the pinky ring mm-hmm. he's still connected to her mm-hmm. and that brings us to a good point to start on the next issue is we get focused more on Doyle with the issue number eight yes and dead girl and dead girl oh, which yeah. that is Nico's one of Nico's favorite characters shout out to Nico hi Nico here I sobbed when I read this <laughs> I I myself haven't read Ecstatics yet, and seeing her in these few little panels definitely made me push that up on my list to read. Same, but I like that I like that basically she's like the therapist or the death therapist for Doyle, and that we get like a little bit more insight of him and more emotional side because we don't really see any side of him more than just the aggressor side or liking Emily. Mm-hmm. So now we get more of a deeper insight of that. Yeah, it was so well done too but yeah like seeing him kind of processing death was like so so interestingly well done because you know they're like well you died you you have to have these like deep emotional scars there must be something going on he's like no honestly i'm I'm actually kind of okay uh yeah i mean i would have been okay if i was dead uh i'm also okay being alive so (laughs) yeah Because, you know, a lot of his fear uh, about being alive in the first place was that he was going to, you know, destroy his friends and and bring about darkness to the world and whatnot. But, you know, he's like, okay, fine, if I'm going to be the one, then if somebody destroys me early, I can't be that horrible, horrible person that I saw. But at the same point in time, it's like, she brought me back to life and I feel okay. Which, I, you know, that kind of, oh my god, (gasps) oh, sorry, having an epiphany. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) when you like okay so emily is calm and nice and sweet and like you know very well emotionally balanced and you may be right that part of her soul is now in him and that's helping to give him emotional balance 
I can see that. And now with part of maybe um, Doyle's soul part in her, maybe that's why she was more lashing out at oh. Doctor Strange and Zelma because she has some of that fiery anger in her. Maybe oh. and like that that that's a good that's a good insight, Raven. I I I didn't even process that part yet. That's really good. I like. I that. hadn't even put that together <laughs> yet. Oh my god! Really oh, good. I love the layers in this book. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is Scotty Young's baby. I I love it. I I need. I hope we get so much more of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I have to admit that I, when I first saw Doyle Dormammu, i.e., the son of Dormammu, I think I may have audibly groaned. <laughs> I was like, uh, I think we really? all did. I think we all did. <laughs> and here I am, like loving this character. He's right? sympathetic. He's very. He's just delightful. Um, he is he's a legacy character, unlike some of the other legacy characters we see, because he knows essentially what his destiny is or what he thinks it is, and he doesn't want it, and he wants to be something different. But in in a way, he's al- almost also accepted that it's probably inevitable, and I I get that from his um, from his posturing throughout the series, and something about that it's like oh it's so relatable. It's like it's like your dad is a jerk, and you don't want to be a jerk like your dad but you see that you are kind of like your dad still and you're grappling with that you know those feelings and like but he i mean he's such a sweet kid at heart mm-hmm. um yeah i can't believe that i fell in love with him <laughs> like, I, I love this character now like and he's he is going through some pretty big shit and yeah he's he's dealing with it relatively well but it also feels like maybe he's being pretty dismissive and not being honest with himself still and i think maybe we'll see that as we find out kind of the repercussions of him being dead and now being alive again. Uh, I definitely agree with a lot of that. Like, I absolutely adore him. I'm waiting for that Doyle Funko Pop to come out eventually. (laughs) (laughs) With a lot of that, like, backstory for him and seeing, like, how he's processing a lot of this, it really gives like us, like, a lot of reasons to, like, really root for him because Mm -hmm. he's in, like, a tough spot where he doesn't want any of that like he just wants to be like a kind-hearted person who protects his friends and he doesn't want to put their lives at risk and harm them or harm many people even and i really do like just his opening scene alone with him talking to dead girl i really love the idea of characters that come back and they're you know and they're speaking to someone who um also experienced that who's very knowledgeable about that and is able to help them process things like that because sometimes when a lot of characters come back from the dead they're just like hey bitch i'm back now and everything's <laughs> gucci with that mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, you know, with some other characters, like, for example, uh, Hellcat, she was a character that we've seen process things in other books. But, like, you know, we don't, we sometimes don't really get really important scenes like this where we get to see firsthand experience the conversation of them processing it. And that, right, like, this scene is incredibly, like, important to me and for his character development. And I, and I really do hope that we get to see more of 
of this for other characters in different titles. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree, like, with Dante and Robbie's point. Like, for, I uh, I got so much in my head. So first I want to do, like, Dante with, <laughs> with you saying that, you know, Doyle is the representation of, like, people, you know, not wanting to be, like, their jerk or, you know, quote-unquote evil. I mean, his his father is evil, but, you know, just, yeah. like, in real life, quote-unquote evil <laughs> parents. <laughs> yeah, that is very relatable. And I, and I, I'm assuming that's what Scotty Young is doing and making this, like, making him this character and making him so relatable so people can see themselves like, hey, you know, just because your parent is this doesn't mean you have to be, but mm-hmm. that's also just words and you still have to work at it. Like, you're still going to have those tendencies because you are related. You know, yeah. you do have a lot of the same genes and everything. So you, it's a fight you have to do, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And I do, like, it's really, it, this first few pages is really important because, you know, mental health is such a big thing in the in society like it's a big problem in society and going to therapy the stigma of going to therapy is not as as big as before like people are more prone to go to therapy now mm-hmm. but there's still some people that are just think therapy is just a waste of time and to see this in a comic book and such a young character mm-hmm. to to suggest that even young people should go to therapy and because they still their problems are valid is is a very important thing here and i love that we're getting that in this comic book yeah yeah honestly it is so important especially for younger people who are going through these really big events like dying you're not on Krakoa you don't have a decently (laughs) good you know basis to think oh yeah they'll just bring me back if I die it's not too big a deal no like dying is a really big thing for the for the regular world and probably especially for the magical world but yeah like to show this young person going through this process you know like sometimes when a big event happens you're just kind of you're just kind of numb and you think you're okay at first and it's not until you start to really really process uh that that brush with mortality that you like start to (laughs) start to break down or start to have some other issues so yeah it was great to see that they're immediately there for him and immediately addressing what happened versus just kind of waiting to see if he goes off the rails yeah raven actually bring a good point there i feel like i hope like i know i know that the ex office is doing a lot so i'm sure we're gonna get this at some point but seeing dead girl counsel doyle in this i hope we get dead girl on krakoa you know counseling Mm -hmm. the people that have died and couldn't deal with it like Mm -hmm. just i feel like with krakoa even if they can come back we've seen even with you know domino and colossus just to give a good example they've had Mm -hmm. many traumas coming Mm -hmm. back to life and like it kind of got erased because they said they didn't want it anymore or people chose to not give it to them anymore the memory of it to affect them but i feel like that's gonna backfire at some point and we're gonna need death counseling and mm-hmm. i hope yeah. that that's yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just hope that that transfers to Grakoa, that dead girl i feel like she's a good representation of that and be a good counsel just like we see here mm-hmm. i was having the same thought like i was like why don't we have this book happening mm-hmm. with with Krakoa? why don't we have a therapist showing us those conversations and those interactions. I know we get a little bit of insight into some of the mutants and how they deal with, you know, the rebirth, you know, getting another chance at life. Um, but those are snippets, right? That's not really like the breakdown that, that this kind of a session is. So I hope that we get to see that too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the counseling would also be really good for the um, people who are waiting for other mutants to come back, like Wolfsbane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She 
you could definitely have a couple of good conversations with that girl. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. I, I feel like we're going to get that more once um, shit hits the fan more. <laughs> I feel like once people are like, hey, you know, resurrecting is good and all, but my brain's kind of broken still. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of getting at Hellions too, because I mean, look at Havoc. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> back to Strange Academy, we go to the next group of kids are on kind of like their first field trip we've kind of seen like we've seen other little field trips but this is like a big one it's off planet mm-hmm. so and i do have to i i have one thing that really bugs me about this one panel i mean this one page is that groot says i am groot and isn't talking now i know y'all might not i don't know if anyone if any one of y'all read guardians of the galaxy right now but groot talks now he doesn't say i am groot to talk so now I know the Marvel office, they all probably don't talk to each other as much. Mm-hmm. And Scotty Young isn't really on any other Marvel books right now. So he might not know. I mean, why would he? I'm sure he's busy. I'm sure he's not like catching up on Guardians because he doesn't really need to. He's right Strange Academy. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, uh, no, Groot talks now. He doesn't say I'm Groot anymore. <laughs> I'm like, he was reborn and he talks. But that's that's my that's my little gripe. It's not a big deal. Not a big deal. <laughs> well, and and not not to excuse it away, but also, uh, even though he was reborn, I mean, he might still use some of the old language that he has because Rocket understands it, but nobody else need, around him needs to understand it. So if he's not trying to be like super obvious or whatever, he might just drop back into old code. Oh, true, true. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, but I was I thinking like... the same thing as a, as a, you know, wave the hands like, well, this is an explanation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really, yeah, it really is. But no, uh, ho- hopefully that'll get updated and, and whatnot. <laughs> if, it, if it does, right. If it doesn't, it's no big deal. I mean, it's it's Rocket and Groot, you know, we, they're, they're comedy relief characters, but they're also like really fun and smart. So it's it's all in good fun. But I like that um, that we get this trip. Mm-hmm. You know, we get this trip to this different planet and we get to find more magical items on this planet. I, I like this one quote that they're like, you know, not all magical items are found in old castles on English hillsides. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> all magic isn't from England. Thank you. <laughs> that was so that. good. That was so good. <laughs> But also, I I love to see the fact that the staff at the school aren't just thinking about themselves because they could have gone to that planet, no problem with no masks, no apparatus on themselves and just, you know, gone and done their thing. But like, uh, I think it's Kana that explains, yeah, I I mean, the helmet is a little bit for your protection, but more so it's for the inhabitants protection. We're not just going to go in there and just train wreck shit. We're, we're, We're thinking in a way that like it's good for everybody versus just good for us i'm like oh oh i kind of like that because they're thinking outside of just themselves which is awesome yeah that was a really good tidbit that i'm glad scotty young put in here i was like oh they're thinking about another person's environment and not trying to you know pollute it that's really thoughtful mm-hmm. that's a really good lesson that um you know the rest of society could and could learn especially right now <laughs> so, put on a mask so. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, 
<laughs> that is a, such a great point. And it's such a, a wonderfully subtle way to make that a real world point, right? Like yeah. here you are, you're a guest in someone else's space. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about you. You need to think about the others around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that never more relevant than today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so beautifully done. So beautifully done. So while we're off world, um, I think this is a really great time uh, to mention uh, or to bring up the art again, um, because I think that Ramos does an amazing job with these other landscapes that we see. And I mean, that's one of the great things about this book is like, it's not, we're not just always stuck on the Academy. We're dimension hopping or now we're planet hopping and we get to see all these other amazing locales. And I think that the art style really lends itself beautifully to just these overwhelming, very detailed landscapes that just are immersive. Mm -hmm. And and I think the part of that that works the most for me that I, I feel like I've seen when we go to these different areas is the coloring is actually what really brings it to life and makes it distinctive and separate from the time that we're at the academy in school hanging out with the friends um it just something something about the way that they work together to make it seem other is is beautiful yeah yeah oh those lovely purpley blues oh right like i just want to stare at them all day like those those are my happy colors i'm like we're in a cool new exciting place and everything is visually exciting Mm -hmm. yeah the colors make me very excited for uh what they have planned like if there's going to be any other field trips that they're going to show us in future issues i can't wait (laughs) yeah yeah the like not only is the art and line work beautiful like the color story is so well thought out and you know when you're in different environments and and oh they do such a good uh uh, transition so sometimes you, you like you even know where you are in the academy by the color story that you're looking at so you have like the softer like greenish colors when you tend to be towards like the nurse's office or the or and then you have those uh the deeper shadows and beige colors when you're in the dungeon and those beautiful bright greens when um and soft colors when you're like in a classroom especially if you're in a classroom near nature it's like they do such a good job of using their color story to kind of uh tell you where you are and a bit of what's going on and it's so subtle but so well done oh definitely definitely and why did i think of when i saw these creatures why did i think from think of mr snuffleupagus (laughs) from sesame street like it just brought me back i know it was that wasn't intended at all but (laughs) it just brought me back to my childhood and i was like oh my god i want one of these deadly creatures they look so fluffy they would kill me but it's okay they definitely have like a muppet vibe for sure <laughs> like oh man muppets on hangry steroids <laughs> just oh yeah <laughs> uh speaking of hangry steroids uh sure this is a transition um we get the next class which is with Agon Ag- oh, agatha harkness mm-hmm. and did we did we know that she was a teacher i don't remember if we saw her but like saw her on the list before this is the first time i remember seeing her i don't uh but it's possible they've alluded to it mm-hmm. But I I love it so much. I don't remember how she came back to life. Maybe it was in the Scarlet Witch solo. I haven't read that in a while, so I can't remember. But I love Agatha so much, and um, I'm loving her in the in the WandaVision show right now. I hope we get this more version of her soon. Um, I 100% but, wanted to call her Agnes just now. 
right? (laughs) (laughs) But I like how she's like, if you didn't read, you failed. If you don't do this, you failed. I had teachers like this Mm in elementary, high school, even college. And I kind of love it because it's like, you know, you need to read and Mm -hmm. do the work, kids, okay? You can't be just fly by and think you're going to pass. Well, she's right. They're they're dealing with some pretty uh, high-level magic now. I mean, multiplication magic can get out of hand real quick. So yeah, if you're if you're messing around with stuff that you don't quite understand or have a full like grasp on, yeah, you could end up accidentally like I don't know summoning an old one instead of <laughs> just summoning multiple creatures. You're like, oh, <laughs> I messed up. So she, yeah, like I like the fact that she is not sugarcoating <laughs> how much you need to do the work. Like I love it. I also love that we see an old person because yes. usually you know you're just dealing with either kids or like you know adults mm-hmm. like middle-aged adults or even like in their young 20s but no she is just she's old she's crotchety she's in her way so i'm like i love it i'm here for it <laughs> she's fun mm-hmm. i really do <laughs> i really love the way that this book utilizes it guest appearances um you know i really don't feel like it takes away the focus from the kids which is great which would be so easy for it to happen um you know getting these familiar characters from comics history of what 60 plus years Mm -hmm. um and and having them be relevant and imparting their you know their own knowledge to these kids but but again not pulling away like it just really adds to the story um i i love seeing it i love i love all the little bits that we get from the guests uh, you know, the guest characters, um, you know, even if they're just like on the info pages or um, kind of like like the more little extras at the end of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's so delightful. And I, I mean, it's great to see these characters being used as well. Right. I think that's a, a, a complaint that we have as fans a lot of the time is that like, hey, what about so and so? What about this person? Like, we love these characters. We want to see them. Mm-hmm. And this book is doing a great job of giving us those little insights like, oh, here's Agatha Harkness. This is what she's been up to. She's a teacher now. <laughs> yeah. Can we can we talk about how I love in the background because you know we only get like a certain number of students we focus on in this mm-hmm. book, which is understandable. That's what all TV shows do. There's a, a school full of people, but you know we can only yeah. focus on so many people. Mm-hmm. But I love in the background that we get different people of color and mm-hmm. of like religions because they have that. Yeah. I'm assuming it's a woman with a hijab. And I love that even in the background we mm-hmm. get that different. Because it, it's so easy to just, you know, color a character white, make mm-hmm. them have a basic hairstyle because they're not the main character, and mm-hmm. then just move on. But they took time to give these characters we know nothing about different characteristics, yeah. you know, different skin tones, mm-hmm. and that's just wonderful to see. It's 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 great to see somebody who really cares about the characters and the environment that they are creating. So yeah, like, even if you don't know a character by name, you still get this this beautiful plethora of all these different people and nations and there's no assumption that oh if you're magic you could only come from this one place or these few limited places this is an academy for anybody who has magic so oh it's it's so great to see um a writer and artist who really enjoy and care about what they're creating and have put so much thought and work into making it just beautiful and diversified it feels like they've actually thought out every aspect of what they're doing which is just oh i love it mm-hmm. so much i love i love the humor that we get in this book too like that's that's definitely one of the selling points like there it is 
is so lighthearted in a lot of ways. And even even in this issue and the last issue, where we've been dealing with some more serious subject matter, you know, especially right off the top with the therapy session in this issue, um, Mm -hmm. we're still in a school with kids. And these kids, like they're full of life and they're energetic. And there's there's so much optimism there. And so the the humor that comes into these magic sessions um, and, you know, the comment of giant trouble, you know, is <laughs> little pun. Like, it's just so cute. And I love it. And and that's the other thing I feel like the art style really complements the overall feel of the book mm-hmm. is some, something about it just feels so youthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramos's art style just fits children. Yeah. Like, the, the, the school setting. Like, for me, it completely works. And, yeah, like, I, I love that we get a lot of Gus. <laughs> <laughs> like that's cute. that's fantastic because Gus is so endearing. Like mm-hmm. ooh, I love Gus. Oh yeah. Hey everybody, it is Nathan. Hey guys, Nico here. And we're talking about Marauders King in Black and oh my god, hot daddy bishop. Like thank thank God he's finally getting some screen time. Yes. Oh, for real. And no more people echo that exact sentiment than Maddie, Evelyn, and Kyle, who felt the exact same way in this next segment, where they talk about the crossover tie-in. My only complaint about this tie-in, and I'm not kidding, I had misread something and thought it was a three-issue miniseries, like Valkyries, and when I saw Mm. that it was a one-shot, my heart broke a little bit because I could have used two more issues of this round of the interplay of crossovers and X-Men. Now, like, you know, between this and S.W.O.R.D., it really feels like a good time to enjoy crossovers with the X-Men. Oh, I'd agree. I mean, they're getting prominently featured, like they're getting mentions in books that aren't purely mutant books. So I am super, super psyched for this. Oh, yay. And this issue, oh, my God, it felt like the Marauders and not just the Kitty Pride story, which I love Kitty Pride, Kate Pride, but like the Kate Pride story in Marauders was a little long. Yeah, it felt really interesting to see the Marauders play a different sort of role than from within, right? Because the title is always from within. It's always how the Marauders interact with each other. Here we got to see an example of how the Marauders interact with the world at large. And the team had an incredible time discussing the ins and outs of this issue, both the writing and the amazing art by Luke Ross. Hey guys, and welcome back to yet another fantastic episode of X is for Podcast. As always, my name is Maddie, and you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And today I have a fantastic group with me to discuss King and Black Marauders number one. So Kyle and Evelyn, why don't you introduce yourselves? Okay. Uh, I am Kyle and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary, and you can find me at comic underscore canary at Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. And of course, you you both have been with us for so long. Kyle, you've been uh, with the X's for Podcast family longer than I have. So to introduce <laughs> you, to introduce you is a little foreign for me, but we are here today to discuss the one-shot crossover with King in Black that is Marauders King in Black number one, written by Jerry Dugan with art by Luke Ross, color art by Carlos Lopez, letters by Corey Pettit of Virtual Calligraphy, and design by Tom Muller. Null, the symbiote god of the void, has laid waste to earth. 
Among many others caught in his wake are Cyclops and Storm, our great captain and an Omega-level mutant, respectively. To put it mildly, Krakoa is suffering the same as everybody else. On a mission to reclaim their fallen, the crew of the Marauder intercepted a stress signal from a nearby freighter on its way down. Battling off interplanetary dragons by the score, the Marauders redirect the course of the sinking ship and discover it full of human cargo. With the ship slaver dealt with humanely, the crew of the Marauder, with the assistance of Emma and Magneto, relocate the rescued refugees to Island M with a promise to deliver them safely to the country of their choosing, demonstrating, as Magneto calls it, the mercy of Krakoa. Now, I know that was a mouthful, and it was probably the 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 most distilled version of this, this very straightforward issue that I could have given you, but that said, we need to take a step back and look at King and Black on the whole if we're really going to discuss this right today. So I know myself, at this point of recording, I am two of three issues into King and Black proper, and with the exception of Marauders and The Union, I'm not reading much of the crossover content, though I am staying abreast of it with the wonder of Google. So Kyle, Evelyn, and why don't you tell me a little bit about your personal experience with King and Black? So I am the one that is coming in as a kind of a fresh voice for this one shot where I've been reading all the Marauders stuff, but I have not been reading King and Black. Not that I don't want to. It's just I read a lot of comics, so I'm waiting for the trade because that's a little bit more affordable. <laughs> it is. Yeah, no, it, it, and it really is. <laughs> yep. Um, so I've been following along pretty much just like you, Maddie. Uh, I'm, I'm actually caught up on the, the main event and I've really only read the Mara- uh, Marauders and the Union. So that's, that's all I know. So for the most part, you only have a leg up on me in terms of one issue. And as far as like backup content, we're all a little bit lacking. So thankfully, uh, this didn't really have much interplay, this issue, with any of the other events of King and Black, with the exception of the, the X-Men's involvement oh, at the end of issue one. I forgot. I'm also reading um, Return of the Valkyries. Oh my God, so am I. I yeah. forgot about it too, which is <laughs> probably very unkind um, yeah. to the creative team. And for that, I'm well, sorry. <laughs> I, I would say it's more parallel to King and Black anyway it's it's more taking place on the spiritual level than on on the uh, physical plane so you know and and it brings me so neatly to something that i wanted to open up with today because this is far from our first crossover that we were discussing and only two months into this year we we still did a little bit of post rap content on the ten of swords event so we've been discussing crossovers and we are looking forward to potential crossovers in this year already so king black is a very expansive crossover if ever there were one uh the events of which take place in a variety of one shot and recurring titles from black cat to spider woman and from deadpool to daredevil and that's before we factor in the mutant overlap which the majority of which take place in upcoming issues of sword about three or four issues of sword will be running concurrently with king and black so having said that is there a currently running x title that you would maybe have expected to see take the mantle of introducing the reality of this threat as it pertains to mutant sovereignty or did marauders feel like the right choice so i kind of want to say that while i've only been reading marauders this really felt like a marauder story and i'm not entirely sure how much it actually contributes to the king and black story as a whole 
and you know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> uh, it is it is tangentially related at best. It picks up on a moment between issues one and two of King and Black in which uh, Cyclops and Storm, among many other heroes, find themselves quote unquote nullified. So in that regard, it took the only direct thread pertaining to the X-Men, which was the, the taking over of Storm and Cyclops and really went running after it. I personally was hoping to see a little bit of, and I discussed this in our last coverage of King and Black number two, I was a little bit hoping to see, or at some point I still hope to see, though looking at the titles coming out, it is very unlikely, I would love to have seen what the nullified sky looks like on Krakoa. Mm. Because, you know, Arby Silva, Pepe Larraz, the, the the entire creative team that has worked on House and Power since has done such a unified and homogenized job of giving Krakoa life and warmth and depth. And I would love to have seen what the island looked like under a black sky. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that would that would definitely be quite the imagery to be able to witness, I think. You know, and I'm so glad you think so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say that I think that Marauders makes sense for it to be uh, tied to King of Black uh, just because of how much they spend just sailing the seas and doing their work trying to save mutants and stuff like that around the world. I was kind of also hoping that maybe there would have been some X-Force related. So I would love to have seen a little bit of an X-Force crossover. And and so in that in that regard, you know, I'm going to I'm going to give my own answer to the question that was stated. I would have expected to see this be because we've discussed in many recent recordings the the ever expanding and changing nature of X-Men as a title and due large and largely in part to the destabilization of a roster. We know that X-Men is having an election coming up. So anything that comes out in the interim is going to be padding and filler at best. That's true. So I certainly didn't. Right. So I didn't really see X-Men being the one to carry that mantle but x-force for sure i would have expected i really thought that we were going to see homebound threats to krakoa mm-hmm. you know and i'm sure we are only off panel and i wonder how much of that is because there are just so many moving pieces to the post house and powers era that you know i personally i wouldn't want to try my hand at writing into this universe for a crossover or otherwise i would be concerned beyond belief that i would possibly make a misstep because everything that Jonathan Hickman and the X-Desk are doing seems so purposefully calculated. That is true, especially when we know that Hickman has stated he has, what, a seven-year plan, is what he said? I, that sounds familiar. Um, it was either seven or five. I don't remember, though. It was one of those numbers. Uh, it's seven or five. Hmm. Um, well, you know what? Tweet at us and let us know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that, you know, to, to jump back to something that Evelyn said, I really think that at the heart of it, because as Evelyn said, you know, you're not reading King and Black, but this still felt very much like a Marauder story. And in that way, I never would have expected Marauders to be the book that fits so neatly into the fold of this crossover. But having said that, I really think that they, they couldn't have hit more on the head with the way that they executed this issue. It was no frills, for sure. It was a very direct and straightforward Marauder's mm-hmm. tale, but mm-hmm. much much like a lot of Volume 1 of Marauders, you know, this is this is actually the the first time that we're seeing 
this outing of the full roster. So with the exception of Storm, this is the full first volume roster outing for the original cast of Marauders. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. And in that way, this took me back. Like this could have been put, this Marauder story, you know, apropos of nothing with, with no regard to the upcoming Hellfire Gala, with no consequence to anything that came before. This just felt like a singular seafaring story. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Get rid of King and Black and it could have been them uh, bringing, bringing medicine somewhere and then coming across a stranded ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Now, I, I I have to ask because, you know, this is this is, of course, in the era of mutant sovereignty, there is no killing of man. We saw at some point in this issue with the slave traders, the the ship captain and crew that had their, you know, massive human cargo, they were dealt with humanely is a kind way to put it. Um, they were still <laughs> a little fucked. Uh, they were dropped in the middle of the desert and left with uh, nary, uh, nary 20 pounds of ice cubes to carry uh, to keep them hydrated, which is uniquely unkind. Like, I really loved that, uh, to be honest. But, you know, aside from that, I Iceman in that way stood out the most for me. You know, that moment was was the, the real fuck you of this issue. And it's not that I was looking for that, but this team definitely has a lot of grudge and gruff to them. You know, Kate is, Kate is embittered by from Sebastian Shaw and everything that we saw conclude in the last two arcs. She's embittered by not having use of the Krakoan gates. Uh, Pyro is just frankly happy to be here. <laughs> Iceman has a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> Pyro's just happy to be here. He doesn't care. He wants to get more tattoos. And like, I feel like Pyro. I really do. Like, I just want to tattoo myself and like go hang out with friends and like set things off. Pyro is That's... one of my favorite. I hate to say inconsequential. I hate to say inconsequential characters but he is a little inconsequential most times but he's probably my favorite of those characters where it's like he's just kind of there but whenever he is there it's a delight yeah he brings a a kind of a levity to to it mm-hmm. you know he he just oh lightens sure. he he lightens things up but <laughs> I am thrilled. I'm frankly thrilled that it didn't go over my head. Um, I'm really glad that I caught that in real time. There was there was no editing that went went into the making of that joke. Um, <laughs> I I I have to agree. And the moment that stands out to me, I I didn't even see myself referencing this. So I only wish I had the issue on hand. And I want to take a stab and say it was like Marauder Seven. But when the ship is pulling into what I believe to have been Madripoor to rescue a gaggle of refugee mutants for Krakoa and the ship comes in with Pyro redirecting redirecting Lockheed's fire screaming lyrics to Journey (laughs) I think is the funniest thing that that Jerry Dugan has ever put to page ever it is genuinely and, and so in that way like I I wanted to say, I wanted to say that Pyro was my standout because I I love him. I love the brevity. I love the humor. I love, I just, and, and I imagine he's just like a sweet fun time guy. Yeah. Like he doesn't care where he ends up or who he ends up with. Like he's going to make the most of it. But my vote goes to Iceman. But you guys sound off. Who was your standout explicitly in this issue? Uh, I 
pretty much always have to to stand Iceman. So he's he's my my favorite. He's your ride or die. Yeah. He's your ride or die, and that's fine. So the standout for me was Bishop, but in a way where it was not a positive standout because something we've been discussing on this podcast is like if you've been reading X Force at all, like Beast is like definitely headed towards Dark Beast esque kind of stuff, and Bishop like agreeing with Beast and being like basically indicating is like free them and like help them or take them out kind of deal. It didn't sit well with me that Bishop would agree with that um, because I was kind of reading Bishop lately as kind of being a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more yeah just a little bit more hopeful within what he's doing and to see that that's how we see him kind of in his first role as a captain of Krakoa. It's like oh okay you are real serious about this kind of thing and maybe not in the best way no for sure i absolutely get that kyle what was your read yeah he he definitely feels like he's not willing to bend when circumstances require bending mm-hmm. uh he he feels too stuck on the the rules of the mission i guess and it just felt weird to me you know i have i have a lot of complex thoughts on bishop in that regard I think that, because let's not forget that Bishop's inclusion into Marauders was, sure, at Kate's request, but in the capacity of protecting Kate's best interest and self-interest. You know what I mean? So in that regard, I understand. You know, I I believe in the fluidity of the power dynamic. I believe that every one person, for, for every person that you have to be in some way responsible for motivating and or protecting or, you know, giving love and affection to... There should be some reciprocal aspect of that. And in that Mm. regard, I think that Kate and Bishop at this point should have more of a direct dialogue about, no, I don't need to be handheld. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. Like, I've got this. But before we get off the topic of Bishop, I think it's so fascinating because this issue is told primarily through Bishop's narrative. All of the narrative boxes are bishops, which took me a moment to really grasp onto until the Beast flashback. I was kind of like, who's really running the show here? But, you know, as such, he certainly is the star. What hopes do you have for Bishop moving forward? Just vaguely, generally, do you do you see him sticking out ride or die with Marauders? Do you see him jumping over to the title of X-Force and being more of a domestic uh, force for, for the good of all mutant kind? Do you see him on the Quiet Council? Um, do you see him shirtless? I see him. <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but um, no, like, it's, I think that a really powerful dialogue line that you hear um, is that you basically understand that Kate pretty much picked him because Shaw didn't have anything on him. And while that's like a good reason, is it a good enough reason at this time? And I want to see them maybe confront that a little bit where it's like, how much do you actually trust me? How much do you actually want me here? And maybe have them either confront that or have some proper bonding is what I would like to see. If it's going to go that way, who knows? But I can dream. We all can, can't we? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I definitely want to see him and Kate kind of work 
out how things went down in Madripoor and kind of get help him get over that feeling that he he failed her by heading off with the rest of the team even after uh she told him to go mm-hmm. so i get that i and i think there is i think there's real potentiality for that and i think anybody who is reading marauders who is curious of the future of what marauders looks like because i feel like something the biggest thing that everybody seems to be looking forward when it comes to the pages of marauders is and rightfully so the hellfire gala because who would <laughs> i'm so excited you know what i mean <laughs> Every, everyone's gonna oh, be I'm there so i'm gonna be there i literally i want I, I don't want to like talk about it on air but like there's a competition to get yourself like uh animated into the hellfire gala i don't care how small of a panel it is i want my stupid fucking face <laughs> in the hellfire gala i i really want you all to have to just like look at my face i have thoughts on bishop and i'm so glad that you all shared yours but i think that a quick side note anybody who is currently reading marauders who is not reading this issue i think missed a really key piece of context and content for what will shape the way of the book moving forward i think bishop is just the captain now I think Bishop is absolutely the captain of the Marauder, and I can, you know, hear. So Kate was successfully resurrected. The internal threat of Sebastian Shaw was neutralized. So we don't really feel that Kate is still in need of her bodyguard. You know, over the course of the issue, we see Kate call Bishop captain several times. So do we think that Kate is relinquishing the day-to-day sailing operations to Bishop in the interest of elevating her her position and interest and turn her focus internally towards the day-to-day operations of more internal affairs of the Hellfire Trading Club? Because that's what I think. Oh, see, I disagree totally. And that's that's great. Please (laughs) tell me why. So the reason that I disagree is is this issue where Kate is just so she's just there for people. She is there to help people. She wants to help people. She wants to be involved. She's not the sit down at a council meeting type person. She's the one actually out there and doing shit. She just happens to be in charge while she's doing it. And I don't see her enjoying just like we're doing meetings and doing paperwork and trying to like elevate her status. She's just like, okay, cool. I got this status. Let's use it. Okay, okay, for sure. Kyle, tiebreaker? I I think that her deferment to him is specifically in relation to the mission that they're on. I don't think that he's taking over as captain of the Marauder. Uh, kind of like in New Mutants, where once something became a Krakoan matter, magic took over control of the of the group. You all right? You brought me around. You absolutely <laughs> brought me around. I think that because for a moment I was expecting to be the the counter argument to be like, well, he was the captain because he was the one driving the boat, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, you know, you wouldn't be wrong if you pointed that out either. But like, I think I I still think in some capacity it is his role as the Red Bishop is specifically to take over a second in command for Kate. So in this moment, you know, when I when I went back and rewrote it a second time is really when the gears started turning for me about what if this is a permanent promotion for Bishop? What if Bishop is now going to be the face of the the sailing operations, you know? Yeah. But I either way, it is it is a a deft and particular use of the hierarchy and the power structure within the Hellfire Trading Company to assume command of Bishop. 
You know what I mean? So in that regard, I don't think that we've seen a lot of a lot of interplay between the subsidiary um, Hellfire members, you know, the bishops and and so on and so forth. I, I was just going to start naming pieces of chess and just assume I was right. I was like, pawns. Yeah, white pawn. Bishop is captain or otherwise, he's just handsome as hell. We can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. So I will absolutely take it. So we're, we're once again shown a glimpse of Emma's mysterious Island M in the North Atlantic. And though before we can see it put to use for the benefit of a mutant forward agenda, we see it full to the brim of human refugees. So Magneto claims that the impetus for allowing humans to harbor on the island was an extension of, as he would refer to it, the mercy of Krakoa. So we've, we've seen it on a small scale, the, the human incorporation into the island of Krakoa. This was then, if not the first instance, the most large-scale instance, and sure, they didn't set foot onto Krakoa proper, but Island M, we know, or we can assume, Island M is where the Hellfire Gala is going to be hosted, and we know that the predominant makeup of the Hellfire Gala is going to be mostly human. So I it, do we think that Island M is kind of its own exclusion to the rule? Because how many people were on that boat? 30? Yeah, there had to be a good number of them. We do know that there is a uh, caretaker of the island who is human that they uh, they purchased it from. And do we foresee this? This moment in time, this dire straits situation with the events of King and Black in full swing, the entire world being overtaken, you know, Magneto loosened Charles's rule a little bit and let a couple human beings into the secondary island, you know, sure. But do we foresee a future in which mutants of Krakoa make space for human inhabitants to make up 20 or more percent of the island? On paper, it makes perfect sense. And on paper, it's uh, a beautiful and wonderful thing. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. a mutant, you have a new home here with Mm -hmm. other mutants. That's awesome. But what happened to the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years of some of these mutants' lives having to cohabitate with and intermingle their lives with human beings for safety, for comfort, for friendship, for emotional and physical fulfillment, you know, in a lot of cases? Yeah. What? How many people are leaving full lives behind? I do wonder what happens with all of those relationships that had been built at some point in the past. I'd like to see those specific characters being allowed on the island, but I don't really see a wide-scale opening of of the gates, I'd say. I think that while the higher-ups of the island and the Quiet Council have made up their mind particularly on the matter, I would not be surprised if the populace of Krakoa feeling differently becomes an issue at some point. Evelyn, how do you feel? So yeah, I've got the wheels in my head turning for sure um correct me if i'm wrong but i believe the gates at least to some places are like not eternally open but are definitely easy access for some people to some places like it was for Wakanda pre-x of swords until it got closed um so i would assume that people that did have full lives or loved ones or something would be able to visit them but just thinking about the whole history of mutants i don't know like if i was in their shoes i don't know if i would want to just go back and forth i think i would want some time just being in a place that was just for me so if you you're mutant your partner isn't your family isn't you're the only one in your family you get the open offer to go to krakoa how do you play it in your life right now you you are still very much maddie and kyle and evelyn 
you're not like, you know, it's not like, well, I wouldn't leave because like I'm suddenly a hedge fund manager with like, you know, seven figures in the bank. That's not my life. I'm an Uber Eats driver. You know what I mean? I'd go in a heartbeat. What do you guys think? Um... I think I'd probably go. Um, You'd go? Yeah. I'd, island? I'd, island life, uh, being around people who could teach me to use my powers. I'd probably want to be somewhere where I'd be uh, fully welcome. I truly understand that in the way that, you know, I very much feel like I would like to be around more people who are like-minded and, and of similar of similar stock as I am, you know? But having said that, I couldn't walk away from what I had now. If I couldn't bring, if I couldn't bring anybody in my life right now, I couldn't do it full time. I would love to know if there's a Kurt Cohen timeshare option. <laughs> I'm sure that there really is. Answer. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I'll pay for it over like 25 years. I don't care. I don't care what the blackout dates are. I don't care if I end up like overlapping with another resident. Like it's fine. I will take a Kurt Cohen timeshare. It's perfectly okay. <laughs> Uh, while we've seen human beings gifted with Crico and Gateways in the past, most notably Jeff Bannister in the pages of Ben Percy's Wolverine, you know, by what token do you think Kate is unable to use the portals herself if humans are being not only given gates as, as gifts willy-nilly, but are shown to be able to be escorted through the gate? We've come to believe that her inability is not exclusively linked to her issues with resurrection from last arc. What's your best guess? She's gate banned. Or there's some kind of weird conflict between the gateway technology and her phasing ability. Yeah. That's the only other thing that I can think of. I, you know what? And I've been, I've been saying that for so many issues now, but it just doesn't add up to me in that way anymore. I don't know. Part of me thinks that it's some sort of a coup or an agreement between the island and Emma or the island and some other, you know, telepathic body at large that because Kate's inability to use the gates was the impetus for her becoming a part of the Hellfire Trading Company in the sailing capacity that she was given. I'm sure Emma would have found room for her otherwise, uh, otherwise or in another place, mm -hmm. but Mm. How did we all feel with a new artist taking a crack at these characters that we've grown so accustomed to, as we said before, the volume one cast is together again? I really liked the art on this. It was definitely different, but in a good way. I, uh, <laughs> I liked it, but... At the same time, there was something about the expressions that seemed extra exaggerated to me, mm. and it kind of threw me um, the first time that I read through the book. Oh, for sure. I think that I think that Carlos Lopez strikes a really incredible balance between um, close-up like portraiture and more widespread, multi-faceted, multi-character uh, splashes. The captain has such a wonderful and rich expression on his old and weathered face that is, you know, so deftly done. The the nullified dragon looks gnarly and sick fucking nasty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. So I have, I really don't have any complaint about the art, but I will say it, it felt what was so... I wouldn't say unsettling, but what was so unnerving about it was it felt like I had seen it before and it felt like I had seen it in this book when I simply know that I haven't. And I suppose that is the mark of a good artist to be able to to mimic and transition well into the style of another artist in an established book and give their take while remaining, you know, uniquely, uniquely their own, but 
still tied to the ether of the book. Mm. I I will note that I really enjoyed the way that the rain interacted with the character's hair. Ooh, what a great point. I literally just got to page 25, which is the heavy rain. I mean, not not just now. I literally read the book like days ago. In this moment. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine? I'm sure you put together that Storm and Cyclops were taken over by Null. I'm sure this is not... Although, you know what? It would stand well ask no you first it was it was news to me i had no idea and that had me shook i was like oh maybe i should be reading this now so that i understand the crazy that's happening in the other books well so then in that case let me ask you do you have any prior experience with null because you know and you're welcome to correct me if i'm wrong but you don't strike me as a spidey stan so i'm a fan not a stan but respect I, i mean i still like him i'm just not like it's not my like favorite or honestly top 10 but i still love it um i love venom i'm a huge venom fan but that being said i don't care about null <laughs> i said it and i know i'm gonna <laughs> get okay it. but it's like no. I just, after the whole like we just had the whole venomized thing and then the whole carnage thing and i'm just like i'm just over the symbiotes right now just give me dylan brock i love this stupid little kid that can turn into a zombie dinosaur that's who i care about so knowing that you're a venom fan it's it's all the more surprising to me that you have the most the most touch and go exposure to not only null but but to king and black as an event um, although I will say your null hate isn't not justified. Uh, I like to describe him as a glamorous elder god. It's hate. It's indifference. I'm just, I'm indifferent to it. And I don't care enough to read it immediately. No, and it's fine because he is, look, you know, Donny Cates is, uh, Donny Cates being referenced here, of course, for the tremendous work that he did on Absolute Carnage and a number of other oh, for sure. related, um, you know, titles and instances in the Spider-Verse uh, in in recent years as well as his incredible work on silver server black his incredible work on uh, thor so you know donny cates we we couldn't possibly give him more love or credit uh than he deserves because he deserves it all you know good for him but that said i think in 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 somebody else's hands null becomes friggin ridiculous you know what i mean he he i think nico put it best when he said it was something along the lines of null null will will monologue at you about how how all-encompassingly powerful he is and how you know uh in indelibly futile and and small your attempts to harm him are and the one moment that he's felled suddenly he's super melodramatic about it you know what i mean and it doesn't help that he looks like as stated before the glamour rock elder goth of all time <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous dude uh suddenly for for human traffickers to end up the the villains of the book like the real villains of the book and don't get me wrong we do not support human trafficking on x podcast but i feel like there were bigger issues at play you know what i mean i mean that's why i kind of said in the first place like this felt like a marauder story not a king and black story i was coming in being like okay i'm ready to be confused and ask questions and honestly i don't have have that many questions like <laughs> no i you know what and i i if nothing else because again as stated before there are there are literally more titles intersecting with king and black and there are more characters being featured in the in the sidelines of king and black than i could list for you with the time that we have left 
But having said that, there there is still such merit to be given out to Jerry Dugan for being able to write what is quintessentially a Marauder story while still, you know, not shying away from the inclusion of King and Black and the the nullified dragons and the the state of the world at large. And once again, Carlos Lopez, if nothing else, you know, he he's done some incredible work on this issue, and I truly hope to see more of him going forward. But if there's one thing that he really knocked right out of the park, it was the nullified storm and cyclops in the very beginning of the issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely viscerally terrifying and completely in line with the art of King and Black number one. Yes. Hey everybody, Nico here. Hey, it's Nathan. And we're here one last time to talk a little bit about Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood. Now, this miniseries features three short stories per issue, and it's led to some really mixed results. I have to imagine, Nathan, you probably freaked out about the Chris Claremont special with Kate Pride the way I did. Uh, yes, absolutely. So much in this issue. I was like, I want Ileana to drop me off at Mars, just like she did with Logan. So so you'd be Nathan Carter, Warlord of Mars? Right. You know, maybe get some Excalibur, Kim Reed going on so yeah right i could i could see that for both of us right now while we don't plan on moving to mars anytime soon we have made the jump to both youtube and twitter so if you guys like what you hear you should give us a follow over on twitter at excess for podcast or check out our youtube channel by the same name if you like what you hear head on over to apple Podcasts, subscribe and maybe drop us a review and don't forget to check out our patreon which you can find over on our twitter now nathan I'm excited about a number of the titles we've got coming up, some of the amazing interviews we've got going. We've been doing giveaways and running all sorts of polls and contests all over our Twitter. I know you've been doing some amazing job getting fans to talk about their experience. And I just wanted to say, like, it's been so much fun seeing how our fans have come out to talk about the way they feel about the books in response to us. Oh, absolutely. I love, like, my favorite thing is when I wake up and I see, like, oh, somebody tagged us into something. They really liked what we did. Or, like, hey, they want to know what we're thinking about it. So thank you guys. Keep it up. And we want to hear more from you. Well, until you guys get to hear more from us, check out this last segment featuring myself, Arturo, and Blake as we talk about the Knucklehead. And I make an interesting case for the fact that Wolverine should always be able to count to seven while naked. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of, I guess, Wolverine every fucking week through his many fucking titles, because for some reason, Wolverine gets to get extra titles over anybody else. That makes me Nico, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Blake, BTMorgan85 on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Arturo, I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. So today we're here to talk about Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, which I have to be honest, uh, issue number three. I don't think I've ever said the title right. I think I call it Black, White, and Bloody. I think I call it Red, White, and Black. I have never gotten this title right, which is insane, because there's only three colors in the fucking book. Black, white, and red. And you'd think that with three colors being all there is, I'd maybe get the title right. Well, if only that was the title. If it was black, white, and red, then yes, you would be a fool for not remembering that. But it is as 90s as it gets, and it's black, white, and blood. It's something fucking else, man. Now, I don't know about your guys' results. The first issue left me a little, a little eh. The second issue was one of my top picks of the month that month. Before we even take a look at these three incredible stories featuring everybody's favorite knucklehead, I was wondering, did you guys either have a favorite issue or a favorite story, or are you just along for the ride? 
uh, listeners, I couldn't even tell you what happened in the last two issues. That is kind of the curse of these books. It's a fun exercise, and it seems like the creative teams are having fun with it, but it's not going to, there's not going to be much point to it, right? It's just kind of like bedtime stories of Wolverine, right? Like if you want to have dreams that are in black, white, and blood, but it doesn't feel like they're, they're adding up to anything. It doesn't feel like there's any kind of direction, like there's going to be this through line that's going to like make this all seem, you know, relevant. That said, I think this was a very fun issue. Like that's the thing, that's the thing with this title is like, if you just want to like have fun and explore what happens when an art team is limited to these three colors and, you know, and when a writer is not tethered to like a bigger plot and they're just writing like a fun, you know, little Wolverine adventure, then this is the book for you. Blake, I know that you're like, you've said a number of times, you are like the Omni-Man and you like live for that for trade life. Are you reading this as it's going or did you catch up for this to jump in on this episode? Oh no, I I treat every X-Men comic single issue as part of Don Rain. I buy everything. Uh it's uh, the voices will yell at me if I don't. So I have to buy this, but I am digging it. I have been digging it. Um you know, I, I the art uh so far up until recently has been exceptional and it's uh, I really really liked um the last the number 2 issue with uh, the Wolverine and Kate Pride issue that they did or mini story that they did together. That Claremont story. Story was just a perfect slice of madripoor on a piece of cheesecake for me that was just yeah. like everything i wanted there is greatness to be seen and had in this series that is very hit and miss with people i see people talk about it a lot of people treat it like a pretty one night stand like they look good there's not going to be a second date and i don't really see it like that it is different it's its own thing it's not like really tying into current x events at all but i do like it and it's very pretty except for part of this issue there are three stories in each one of these Wolverine three-color print titles. First up, we have 32 Warriors and a Broken Heart by John Ridley and Jorge Fornes. We have Burn by Donnie Cates and Chris Bacalo. And we have Red Planet Blues by Jed McKay and Jesus Seis. Let's talk about 32 Warriors and a Broken Heart. I think when you're writing a story that's not going to ladder up to anything else, that's not going to connect to anything really, that's just this little snapshot adventure, I think the thing to do is kind of find a trope that works and do something fun with it, right? And this one, you knew from the get-go, I, I, I mean, maybe, what the big reveal was going to be at the end, right? Like, it was very specific how many warriors he had to fight, and we're doing the math as he's, like, hacking, or as they are hacking their way through the ninjas, and then the Ronin, and then, you know, and you're working towards this big reveal of who the final bad guy is going to be. It's kind of you know hokey but i thought it was clever i thought it was fun you know it, it gave us a couple of pages of you know bloody samurai sword fights that's fun i'm at least relieved to know that wolverine can count above seven without getting naked i mean i i, I do agree with you that i was like it's gonna be it's gonna be amico oh my god it's gonna be amico please don't do this because now it's wolverine in battle with another man for a woman now it's his daughter but this story had two women neither of whom had agency, neither of whom was more than a pawn in someone else's plan. And I know it's Wolverine's story, but there were two women here. They didn't really speak, and neither one of them made their own decisions. Both of them were honor-bound 
to two men's battle. And like that kind of sat wrong with me a little bit. There was, I, I would have gone with a young man that Wolverine was responsible for or take Mariko out of the, the engagement. There's other male characters that could have stood her role, but otherwise you just put in two women for no reason. That was my main complaint about this first story. I mean, wow, that is a very valid criticism of this, of how this is structured. Yeah, nobody serves any purpose in this story but to move Wolverine's story forward. And I, th- I mean, I think, you know, beyond uh, systemic misogyny or whatever, that's just kind of like what we're going to get in, in these stories. Um, but there are better ways of doing it, for sure. Blake, how did you feel about seeing Silver Samurai raise his blade against Wolverine? I know you've talked about how you've come into reading the X-Men a bit later than some of the rest of the crew. But, you know, that doesn't make your experience any less valid. It makes it as valid as a number of our listeners. So had you had the background of Wolverine and Canuccio's, you know, sort of eternal struggle or was this new to you and did this story help create that context oh i'm i'm very much a a wolverine fanboy so i um i will consume all i can of of that that short little hairy bastard who's just wonderful to me like arturo i didn't quite catch the the misogynistic tone that you that you brought about but now that you've said it like it's it's ringing in my head and i can't ignore it again like i talked about earlier when when we kind of mentioned what we thought about this series as a whole and what it's doing is that the arc is so good and it is so easy to distract you from the imperfect short stories that we're getting here uh and, and not to dog on the writers because it, it is a lot to do and they each get what like six or seven pages and that's tricky you know you got to get it right there's no room to muddle around and there, there's no there's no piddle fucking opportunity right you just have to be right on it at all times you have to nail all seven pages the artists for the most part are doing this the writers are struggling with it which is weird because someone should have kind of maybe known Notice that and maybe had two stories an issue. No, you know, three just seems I don't know. Anyway, regardless. It, I um, agree. It's too much. It three is is a lot for an issue. There's it's, you, there's it's hard to squeeze anything of value into that few pages. Especially like you said, when it's about like adopting an instatrope for the sake of an eight-page disposable story that doesn't really seem to have anywhere to go. It's it's a lot to ask us to take in three of those at once. Uh, yeah, exactly. And if we would have had more pages, maybe we the writer could have had time to give these other female characters agency, which would have been cool because I did like the idea of like mom and dad going to war for for this daughter that isn't even really theirs that they, you know, swore to protect. Uh and I thought that the scenery was beautiful of like Wolverine and her fighting back to back and and the the reds and the the sword fight and the different enemies and and you know she's just a she's just a woman who's a badass and can fight you know she doesn't have the healing powers we see that she gets cut on her arm and still fells the samurai warrior which was like the, the top tier enemy the, what i really liked about this issue was the the two mentions of how wolverine talks about i'm fighting this person i'll fight him again it may be a month from now it may be six months from now it may be a year from now and he mentions that twice that this is going to be a reoccurring thing and I I liked that nod to how his life is just full of violence no matter what he tries to do. He's always he's he's always on guard. Uh someone's always gunning for him. He, he never really has a moment to rest. Uh his his history is so distorted and and vulgar and bloody and that's what this first mini did perfectly. I think that the heart of the first story boils down to the fact that Logan is a family man and it's exactly like you just said Blake. He is a man built of violence with the world coming at him at all times. Now, 
the PST that Logan inevitably experiences as a soldier, having been victim of so many others' machinations, has left him feeling paranoid, right? He's that guy that can't have a drink at the bar without making sure that he either has one eye over his shoulder or he's looking in the mirror behind the bartender so he can see who's coming in. The idea that that is always coming for his family is one of the greatest motivators for Logan as a father figure or as a husband. This idea, because, you know, there's so many Logans, but those two elements kind of both got put into this story in a way that I I just didn't feel either got explored enough, but I would kind of take that over some of the confusion I experienced reading Burn by Donnie Cates and Chris Boccolo. If... I, you know, I, I'm a huge Chris B fan. Like I'm a, I'm a fucking mega Chris B fanboy, right? Like maddeningly. So I think about his death minis by Neil Gaiman and Sandman in the nineties and how they forever changed my opinion of 16 panel grid. Yep. I think about the cutting edge work he did on Gen X. I think about his cutting edge work when he would return to the X-Men to draw uncanny X-Men under Chris Claremont again. Right, I think about what a powerful creator he has been his entire career, and I am not sure where Donny Cates plus Chris plus Cosmic Ghost Rider plus Wolverine left me feeling so muddled for eight pages. Yeah, I love his art. I I truly love his art, and and all of the 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 instances of his art that you referenced are near and dear to my heart. Big fan, always have been, always will be. But I think this kind of makes a case for his art is better, perhaps with color, because when you strip it down and it's just black, white, and blood, it's uh, it gets a little crunchy. It's a little hard to know what's going on and there's you know big action sequences and and you know you're definitely supposed to feel something you know whether it's the, the a, a wall caving in or somebody getting stabbed or strangled by chains or what have you i had to like analyze the panels to really get what was going on in some of them and uh yeah it was it was a little more distracting than than it than i think it needed to be and I really don't know if that's just a, a, a side effect of the lack of color or if he was just feeling a little extra out there with this with this issue. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely his art. You know, it's not like he's experimenting and, and trying something different. Like it's recognizably Chris Pachalo. And as soon as, you know, I got to that page, I was so excited. But then it was it was kind of hard to 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 follow through. It does something really weird with uh, black ink. Like it, it fills in the, the background of the panels and it fills it in sort Sort of like sloppy and i feel like it's supposed to be i mean that's intentional i feel like but yeah i had a really really hard time navigating the panels figuring out what was going on figuring out what was going on with juggernaut and i was so excited for this i am i am only a medium don donny cates fan you know i i was excited for it. i was like this these two creatives i was like yeah like i was really pumped for it and you know i didn't really think either of them brought their a game it, it felt like uh it, 
it felt like they did this really quick in between another project that they were working on or something that it felt a little rushed. Uh, even the, the strengths of Donnie Cates's writing, like didn't come until the last panel. I mean, it kind of had this heartwarming moment, uh, but even then it was, uh, I mean, I don't want to say cheesy is being harsh. I don't think it was cheesy, but it was kind of like, really? Like this is a bar fight and you're going to end it on this like really high philosophical heartwarming note. It just didn't, the pieces didn't fit. It was odd. And I was so excited about the art. And just because this series has showcased art in wonderful ways with limited color and it's, it's been exceptional up to this point. Like this was the first one that, that just kind of fell flat. And I was like, man, like, and these two people like have the talent should not have fallen flat. Like something, something had to have happened here. I think like the, the, the cosmos, the cosmos, the planets aligned, you know, there's destined for some kind of failure or something. Cause it just, it should have been a lot better. What I, I got to get this out of my system. One, one huge grievance I have with this. Okay. Well, first just to back up a second, going back to, okay, you only have a few pages, pick a trope and run. I think picking, uh, I'm going to have some cool cameos from, from random Marvel characters is a, is a, is a defendable, uh, strategy for sure. So seeing cosmic ghostwriter in this story was super unexpected right like that was that was a fun little surprise seeing juggernaut like okay cool you're writing black white and red or i'm sorry black white and blood you're thinking about it you're gonna have either what a lot of artists have done a lot of blood splash pages or hey let me make the red figure be juggernaut that's you know that's a it's it's a it's a creative solution to to this little exercise so I'm all in for those things. But yeah, it was kind of, it, it turns out to be nothing more than a bar fight. And the grievance I have to get off my chest is I understand that Cosmic Ghost Rider is Frank Castle from the future. Because I think it's not just Frank Castle from the future. I think it's an alternate universe Frank Castle where he became like an avatar of death under Thanos and then eventually became like the Cosmic Ghost Rider after killing Thanos. I'm pretty sure is what it is. Well, this looks like an alternate timeline where Frank Castle can sell you really good weed and he smells of patchouli. Yeah, absolutely. That guy's a big Warren Zevon fan. I want to point out one thing about this story that is more unique than anything I have ever imagined. This story, prior to its release in Wolverine Black, White, and Blood number three, was already solicited for the upcoming Cosmic Ghost Rider Omnibus. This story is so important to the Cosmic Ghost Rider narrative, it's going to be collected with Thanos 13 through 18, and Cosmic Ghost Rider 1 through 5, and Cosmic Ghost Rider Destroys the Marvel Universe, and the Avengers arc he was in. This was already solicited into an upcoming Omnibus prior to its release. That's wild. Yeah, I don't think that's a measure of the importance of it. I think it's going to do in that omnibus what it did here. Fill a couple of pages and uh, and that's about it. Which, I mean, that's a lot of people complained about the recent Donny Case, Donny Cates omnibus because it's, it has the omnibus brand, but it's got an oversized hardcover size. Like, And it had omnibus price too. Like it was, they wanted like a hundred bucks for this book that had like, what, 17 issues? Some, like it, it's very, it's a tiny omnibus. It's it's almost the same size as uh, Gillen's Young Avengers omnibus, which is like which is not- the smallest little baby book ever. <laughs> exactly. So I guess now, they need the filler. Speaking of filler, though, this last story by far my favorite of the three. 
I felt in some ways like the first two were filler for the third one. And whole reason is I love MAME. I'm sorry. I love MAME. Martian advanced. Sucker for an acronym. Sucker for an acronym. So am I. I was really... MAME was like the highlight of this whole... And then there's Death's Head. There's a fucking Death's Head. And they're like, oh, it's from that time the Hulk tried to destroy the universe. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're giving me World War Hulk and Death's Head and Krakoan Ileana and a new acronym? You're saving this for the end just for me to soften the blow of not loving the first two so much. Now, for as much as I complained about the lack of agency for women in the first story, oddly enough, I feel that Ileana has development here. I feel like this is Ileana in some way. Like, I really would love a team-up book of the two of them. Like, if she just joined Percy's Wolverine, I'd be fine with it because that was my big takeaway. I love her. Wait, I pose a question to you guys. Do you read this as it is happening in the Krakoan era? No, that's when I talked about the earlier, um, when I mentioned how we would see in one of the later stories, how it doesn't really tie into current events. Uh, that we see that here because he, he thinks about uh, moving all the mutants to Mars. And he's like, yes. what if we just did this and had our own little place? And and part of me was like, okay, is that like maybe a nod to Krakoa and where the X-Men are at right now? But also like these stories were written well into this, new age of Krakoa like why are you ignoring that or acting like it hasn't happened yet and just when you do that again in these when in these tiny you know we have few pages we have few moments to have a cohesive story why are you trying to confuse me as a reader right off the bat or well right at the end I guess it, it just was that was a weird storytelling move that I didn't really understand yeah I, I read this as the that X-Men era when Ileana was with you know, revolutionary Scott Summers and Emma Frost and and they get the the new students. So you um, bendis this. I bendist it, yeah. And it's and it's funny because we were talking, you know, in the in our coverage of Sword of how sometimes teleporters are mistreated and just turned into living, breathing MacGuffins that get you from here to there. And that's exactly what Ileana does in this in this story. And I think it's kind of funny how they did that. Um but yeah and, and she's talking about how she's so busy and she's going to be faring everyone to on mars you know to mars day in day out that's what solidified for me that this was not krakoa because why not just take a krakoan gate to mars i also loved the use of red in this i actually thought this was the best use of blood personally it's black white and red the red here didn't just change the way i saw the panel it really popped and it had some personality to it especially with the gray chrome metal look of the death's head bot and there was something about the use of the red on the aim helmet, sorry, the maim helmet, that really made this feel visually like it benefited from the black, white, and red ap- approach, where we didn't feel that way at all about the previous story. Yeah, this one succeeds on like my complaint was just the one that the that Wolverine makes about moving the mutants to Mars, which is also it's a cool fucking idea, but we don't need it. We have this awesome island uh, now. But this this third story was showcased everything that could be great about Wolver- this this whole idea of Wolverine, black, white, and blood, and it did everything perfectly. Jesus's art like blew my mind. The fighting looks so great 
great. The the whole deal of like him fighting blind when the robot blasts out his eyes and when he when he takes the hit in the jaw and it rips off half his face. Like that yeah. was terrible. Man, that pit. Oh, that, that was a beautiful. good. That was yep. a good good image. And the, and then my only other critique though was the 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 Wolverine mansplaining the end and like the main guys are like, how'd you do this? And he's like, well, I maneuvered around you and then I couldn't hear you talk. And I was like, yes, the artist just <laughs> visually showed us this as you maneuver around the death's head and the thought bubbles go away and you're all of a sudden ready to win this file. I was like, thank you for telling me again. I like, I like I'm an idiot reader and can't figure that out myself. But yeah, that was, but other, other than that, man, when, when I oh, turned the page and saw Ilyana, like I love her so much. And I was like, Oh my God. I was like, what they're together. Like they don't really ever have a team up. That's like a rare occurrence. Like they're, they may be like on a big battle, like with many other people, but the two of them together, just kind of like bullshitting and walking around Mars. I was like, okay, sir. I was like, I am here for it. Tell you title. Give me that book. I want them hanging out all the time. Just doing like Wolverine and Ileana things, things that only people who love to poke things a lot can really understand. Like that's where my heart is at. Well, I mean, I, if we if we learned anything in the past year with uh, the X books is like when in doubt, bring Ileana into it. She makes everything better. She's a great character. She's fun. She's cool looking. Like she's just great. She's great. And I I love 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 when he she's like you know she tells him she's like bring me back something good and and he gives her that helmet and the panel where like his face is all bloody and it's just grown back and she's trying to put the the maim helmet on and her her head horns are keeping it from like <laughs> and she's like like visual the artist did so well with that scene of like her struggling to get this stupid helmet on her head like man this this is what could make this mini series great and unfortunately we have not got we this is what three story there's three issues three stories so we've had nine minis now and th- this is the best i this and claremont uh were the best of of the nine so far i got to this last page and i'm like this might be my last issue of this it's really fun it's it's cool but like it's not giving me you know the the dopamine hit that i'm looking for when i'm when i'm reading a comic and then you turn the page and you see issue number four is going to be featuring none other than mystique and yeah maybe i'll be around for another issue just to check it's the it last out. issue if that helps perfect that see it's good this that kind of makes me wish that like they would say that up front and and i'm sure that there's you know, publishing reasons and financial reasons or, or whatever, like why they don't, like maybe people are less uh, prone to buying something if they know it's issue one of four, but I actually like it. Like knowing that, that, that this is going to come to an end, it's like, okay, cool. That's what this whole thing was. Little bedtime stories of Wolverine, everybody having fun with this premise. I honestly felt like this is just going to be like an ongoing thing where they're just going to keep bringing people in, but, and I don't want that. I don't need that. And if we're going to do a black, white, and blood version of something like, again, there are so many other characters that we could be talking about nowadays. I think with Wolverine, yes, you you get away with being able to pack in all of these backstories because nobody's going to like bust your balls of, a well, when did that happen? That wouldn't be possible because that's when he was running around. With, like Wolverine has been everywhere and done so much that he's a character that you can do this. You can just pack in all these little backstories and it's fine. It all it's all going to fit into his timeline anyways but 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I am excited to see Mystique. I'm always excited to see Mystique, so I will stick around. It's, it's fun for me. I'll probably buy the hardcover because I, I, I'm pretty sure I heard they were going to put that out in an oversized format. And I do I do love the art for the most part, <laughs> except, for, <laughs> except for this issue in the middle. It got a little weird. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 fun. If you like if you like Wolverine, you know, there's worse things you can buy. <laughs> if you like Wolverine and you like, if you like, Wolverine and you like blood, you're set. My my only my biggest critique, and I think about it every when I learned that like when Kiss did Marvel Comics and they all like put their blood into the red ink, and I'm like, why didn't anybody put their blood into the red ink for this as like a promotional oh. aspect? Like that should have happened. Should have was a it was a blatant letdown from Marvel. Huge well, missed opportunity. No, 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 no. Marvel will never again put Bio Agent in printing anything after the printing of Squadron Supreme contained part of Mark Grunewald's ashes. They're never going to do that again. What? I guess I also just remembered that we're in a pandemic, so maybe it's not a good idea to send someone's blood around printed in a comic. We're not going to just gloss over that. The what now? They printed a comic with somebody's ashes? So Mark Grunewald, longtime writer and editor at Marvel, one of the most beloved people to ever work at Marvel, and then his daughter, Jen Grunewald, has been in charge of special collections for like 15 years now. Well, his thing he was most proud of in his entire career was writing the Squadron Supreme miniseries from the late 80s. Uh, It came out the same year as Watchmen. It was a really big deal politically. It was really good. It was his favorite thing he ever worked on. So after he died, he requested that his ashes be used to print a trade of it. That's incredible. Yeah, his ashes were used to print a book. 